now the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 11 and verse 16. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father and Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise. Father, for your blessings upon us today, Lord, thank you for calling each of us out of our beds and into the gathered worship with your bride here this morning. Lord God, we thank you, Father, for the work that you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for the worship that we have experienced so far this morning, Lord, through singing and through liturgy and confession of sins, Lord, through hearing your word read and proclaimed. Lord, as we continue to hear your word read and proclaimed this morning, Father, we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to believe and to hear and to understand what you have inspired. Lord, we pray as we continue to worship you this morning through Eucharist and through song, Lord, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, our, our text for consideration on this final Sunday of Advent is, is a bit different, especially as it relates to these Advent themes that we have been looking at over the last few weeks. So as you'll recall, or if you've not been able to join us so far, let me tell you now, right? Um, the primary theme of Advent as a season is, an, is, a, is the theme of waiting. Advent is a season of waiting, it's a season where we are reminded that we, as God's people, are waiting on the second advent of Christ, even as we celebrate his first. But it's also a season, and we, we count these every Sunday, we count these uh, different themes. It's a season where we wait in hope, and we wait in faith, and we wait in joy. But today, as Connor and Angela just read, uh, the theme is also peace. Now, as Connor made mention, and this is really helpful, is that the Advent candles can have different themes depending on the calendar year, depending on 
really, the preacher. <laughs> you know, and how these things go, right? And so one other theme, particularly for this Sunday and for these readings that are in our lectionary of Mary, another theme that could be used today is the theme of love, which is where I want to hang out, which is actually works out well because I thought Connor did a great job at exploring the theme of peace. So now I get to play with the theme of love, but they go really well together with this text. So this theme of peace and this theme of love are actually quite clear in the text that Connor and Angela just read. But here in 2 Samuel, that theme is not as clear. See, these Advent themes made sense when we were looking at the prophet Isaiah over the last three weeks, right? We could easily make direct references to Christ from Isaiah because, let's be honest, the majority of the New Testament does the exact same thing. But here in 2 Samuel, as, as we like to try to understand Christ in the Old Testament, there's, there's a valid question of asking, where is Jesus at? How are we to learn to love Christ in Advent? How are we to learn to find the peace of Christ in Advent if we can't comprehend, really, where he might be in this passage? This is even more confusing, or at least it was for me in my preparation this week, when you consider the fact that our reading for today, our lectionary reading, actually skips the most direct reference to Christ in this passage, which is verses 12 to 15. I will reference those later, so we're skipping it, but not. So the question is then, though, what do we do, looking at verses 1 to 11 and verse 16? Well, we do what we always do. Right? We, we look at the text. We understand what God has inspired, what he's saying. We take notice of who is mentioned, who are the people at play. We take mention, we look at when this event occurs, why it occurs, and then we let that inform our Christology. We allow that to help us understand how we are able to love Christ in Advent and have peace in Christ in Advent. But more importantly, how God loves us and gives us peace through Christ, through this text. So this text is, is pretty easily divided into two sections. The first is the first three verses, where we see David and Nathan conversing over, de, over a desire to build a house for the Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant. Then, in the second subsection, which takes place, which takes the rest of our text, we see Yahweh responding to this desire and to this conversation between Nathan and David. So that's how we're going to look at this. So let's just begin again by looking at David's desire in this conversation he has with the prophet Nathan. So we read again, he says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house made of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. All right. So just from the outset, without any other context, if you were reading this blind, not literally blind, but just coming, you know, ignorant of the rest of Scripture, you could at least try to understand that David has a deep love of the Lord just from this desire, right? Because you read this very quickly, he has been given rest from all of his enemies, and now he's worried about the right and proper worship of Yahweh his God. So this rest that Yahweh has given him leads to David's desire then to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. And David's desire really isn't pulled out of thin air. This, is, this isn't something just random. He didn't just sit back one day in his, his new wooden palace and go, you know what, maybe, maybe the ark needs a house too. 
This wasn't just a pretty neat idea. <laughs> so historically in this, in this period in time, and before, well before David, it was not uncommon for a king to build a temple to honor his deity, regardless of the culture. This is the deity to whom this king would attribute all of his successes. So Near Eastern kings throughout history, long before David's time, had devoted massive amounts of national resources to enhance or build temples for their gods. But even more than just simple historical precedent from the surrounding nations, these words of David's desire here in 2 Samuel 7 are an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 12, particularly verses 12, uh, 11, 10 and 11. Excuse me. And this passage describes the arrangements for right worship of the Lord after the Israelites had successfully settled the land. And so in verses 10 and 11, the Lord says this. He says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land, this is Moses' sermon before he dies. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies surrounding you, so that you live in safety, so that you live in peace. Then, to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and a contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you present to the Lord. So here, God is laying out proper worship of him when they settle the land. So what David is doing then is he sits back again in in his palace and he's looking around and he understands a few things. Goliath has been defeated. Saul has been outmaneuvered. All the tribes of Israel are now united under his kingship. Not only that, in the chapter right before this, the Ark of the Covenant has been recaptured from the Philistines who had stolen it. And David has also established Jerusalem as his capital, a central place where the people of God can come and worship in peace. So David realizes that the people of God have, for all intents and purposes, entered into a Sabbath rest. They're resting. And it's from this position of rest that David's thoughts turn then to the right worship of the Lord. And as they do he starts to notice a bit of an anomaly. He's living in this new, beautiful palace made of cedar. But the Ark of God, the mercy seat, the place where God's presence dwells on the earth, is dwelling in a tent. So David's desire to build a temple for God is not a random happenstance. Yahweh had given him victory. He'd given him rest. And so you don't really have to dig very deeply into this passage to notice that David's desire is just simply born out of a love of the Lord. So from David's perspective, it's simply inappropriate for him to be living in luxury than, in more luxury than his God is living in. And so he's concerned about right honor and worship and glory due to the Lord his God. And, and it appears obvious to David that while he is at rest, the rest in which Yahweh had provided him the Lord might be restless because he is still dwelling in a tent, a tent that has been designed to, to move about from place to place. So in David's mind, there could be no objection to glorifying God by building a temple for the ark. But just in case, right, he's, he's taking the proper steps, he calls in the prophet Nathan to share this concern and this desire with him. 
To which the prophet responds, you see in these first three verses, he says, go ahead, basically. Go ahead. And he endorses it. Go ahead and do what you want because your heart is desiring something good and the Lord is with you. So then, out of this love of the Lord and out of this endorsement from the prophet Nathan, notice how Yahweh then responds to this desire of David and Nathan's endorsement. We read just the next couple of verses, starting in verses 4 through 7. It says, but... That same night, so you get, a, get the picture that Nathan is probably asleep and it's given through a vision or a dream. That same night, Yahweh came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to be shepherd over my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? All right, so based upon this response from the Lord, it's hard not to wonder, maybe a little bit, was David's desire to build a temple inappropriate? It's a valid question. Was Nathan's endorsement inappropriate? That's also a valid question, right? Because we know, now, if you continue to read through Scripture, both through biblical and historical record, that Solomon does eventually build a temple for the Lord. So obviously the building of a temple is not altogether a sinful desire. But where David errs, if you want to call it an error, I don't think error is the best word, it's just the only word that I can come up with. <laughs> but if where David errs, is in his misperception of the tent and his misperception of the ark and the rest that Yahweh has provided. So David, in his deep, deep love of the Lord and his desire to properly honor the Lord, sees the tabernacle almost as an unacceptable location for the ark to rest in because he is at rest. His God should be at rest. But in this desire, what David has done and what Nathan has done by endorsing it is that they have forgotten the value of these things. Their perceptions are off. So again, likewise, Nathan's perceptions are off. He's been a little bit presumptuous if you start to look at how Yahweh responds to this endorsement. So Nathan assumes that David's desires are right and proper. I mean, any of us would. Because of course Yahweh would want a temple built to honor him and to have a place for his ark to dwell. Who wouldn't want to build a temple for the Lord their God? But notice, Nathan acts a little hastily to frustrate Treebeard and all the ends, right? He was a bit too hasty, right? But he acts a little hastily in presenting personal approval for David's plans when, in fact, he had been consulted as the prophet of the Lord. So Nathan immediately receives a word from God to the contrary of what he had told David. So it seems safe to assume that Nathan probably spoke first without consulting the Lord before he gave this endorsement to David. Related to this, both to David's presumption and even to Nathan's misperception, Gregory the Great writes this, he says, We read in Scripture that the Holy Spirit breathes where he pleases, but we should also realize that he breathes when he pleases. When King David asked whether he could build a temple, the prophet Nathan gave his consent, he gave his endorsement, but he later had to withdraw it. 
Another commentator writes on this. He states this. God's principal objection here to the building of a temple had to do with human presumption. David's taking it upon himself to pursue pursue a project of enormous theological significance. He says, there are times when a person might set out on a course that is obviously at cross purposes with God's providential plans, even when that person is not acting in a selfish manner. Let's be honest, neither David nor Nathan are being selfish here. They want to honor and love the Lord their God. But this this commentator continues, he says, a person's plan might very well be bold, it might be beautiful, it might be benevolent, it might even be popular, but it still not be God's plan. A person's ambition might be admirable, it might be selfless, but still not be compatible with God's ambition. So, as another author writes, he says, many people have climbed to the top of a ladder only to find that it's against the wrong wall. That's what's happened here. Their perceptions are off. Their presumptions are off. This was not the time for a temple. So then, with that, the question then rightly should be, well, okay, great. Where should their perceptions be? What should they be looking at? What should they be paying attention to? There's a quote that I know that I've heard many times, and some of you have probably heard it in the church, that says something like this. Some people are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. That's a great quote. But, because again, I like to be a little contrarian, right? I'm going to throw a big giant however in there. 2 Samuel 7 gives us a perfect example of how it is also worthwhile to not be so earthly-minded that you miss the heavenly good. That's what's happening here. One commentator states this, he says, Even though this often runs counter to our intuitions and our convictions, God's plans for us are always greater, always more expansive, and always more life-giving than our plans. So notice, in these verses that we just read, God responds, and when he does, he is realigning their perceptions. He begins by realigning Nathan's presumption. Remember, Nathan is a prophet. It's his job to be the mouthpiece of God. But he has just given his blessing to David to build the temple. But obviously God has other plans. And so he realigns Nathan's presumptions with these words. Thus says Yahweh. This gives us our clue that Nathan probably spoke without consulting the Lord first. So in this phrase, thus says Yahweh, this stresses that now Nathan will be acting in an authorized, as the authorized mouthpiece of God. And not merely expressing his own views and his own desires, and his own wishes. But then God asks this great rhetorical question in verse 5. He says, would you, speaking to David, Nathan, go tell David this, would you build me a house to dwell in? Right. This is almost said in a, I, I imagine it almost in a humorous tone. David, you're my king, and I've done all these things, and you're at rest, and I love you deeply, but are you really going to build me a place to dwell in? In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, Yahweh proclaims this. He says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? So notice, very importantly, God is not rejecting David. He's not rejecting his love. He's not rejecting his desire to honor him. He's not doing that for Nathan either. Rather, he is reminding both of them that they are not thinking the way that God is thinking. So God reminds them. He says, look, I have had no permanent structure for my dwelling since I led my people out of Egypt. God, since the Exodus, 
has been content with a tent. He's been content with a temporary, portable structure where he has condescended to share the lifestyle, the wandering lifestyle of his people as they sojourned in the wilderness and as they established themselves in the land that he had promised to them. And his point here, God's point here being that after Israel had settled in the land, he makes this comment in verse 7, after they'd settled in the land, if he had wanted a permanent dwelling for the ark, then he would have commanded it to any of the judges that had come long before David. He had been and he still was satisfied with a tent. But then in the rest of this passage, God takes it a step further. So not only are Nathan's, Nathan and David's perceptions off, but they're not even thinking big enough. They're thinking too small. So now the Lord expands David and Nathan's expectations far beyond anything that they could have imagined or hoped for. So not only is God satisfied with a tent as a resting place for the ark, he is going to build a house that will stand forever and that will provide the people of Israel complete Sabbath rest. So he says this, starting in verse 8, with this phrase, now. That's a good little key word, right? If you're looking to understand how something is playing, when you're looking at Scripture, if it says now, you need to probably understand what happened before, right? So now, you're not going to build me a place to dwell in. If I'd wanted it, I could have asked the judges. So now, instead, thus you shall say to David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, so that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. This is the second time God has said this. Now he's saying it to David after he said it to Abraham. I will make you a great name. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel... And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here, God reminds David that regardless of whether it is in a temple or in a tent, in every one of his endeavors, David has constantly and consistently enjoyed God's presence and has been granted victory over all of his enemies. Furthermore, the Lord promises that through David, God is going to now establish an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne that he will build to bless all of his covenant people by providing them with complete and ultimate rest in him. So God is realigning their perceptions. He's realigning ours as we look at this text. And he does so through an unbelievable reversal of intentions. David's desires... And his proposal to build a permanent house for God, God rejects by promising to build a house out of David instead. And a house that will stretch out majestically over time and eternity. And that will totally and completely bless all who belong to the Lord. So then, back to that original question, right? That's the understanding of this text. But where is Jesus in this text? <laughs> To see this clearly, what we need to do is turn our attention back to where Connor and Angela read this morning. Because these texts go together so well. This is why they're in our lectionary the way they are. So if you would, grab your bulletin and flip back one page. And let's read again the Gospel of the Lord from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. There's that house again. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and it is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right. So we read here, Mary is to bear a son. The Son will be called Son of the Most High and the Son of God. Furthermore, she has promised a couple of things. She has promised that God will give to this Son the throne of his father David. We read in 2 Samuel 7, 16, Your throne shall be established forever, David. But God also promises that the Son will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In that same verse, we read David... Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. But then, Gabriel announces a series of promises that reveal how this conception is to take place. Again, Mary is a virgin. We all know what this means. So how is she going to become pregnant? Well, Gabriel says this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is deep theological language. This is the language of the theology of the tent or the tabernacle and God's presence that dwells upon the tent. The cloud of God's presence that rests upon the tent is the same cloud that will come and overshadow Mary. It's the same cloud that will overshadow Christ and the three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the same cloud that will take Christ out of the visible sight of the apostles at his ascension. It is a sign of the presence of God. It is a sign that God the Father who acts is promising that David's throne will endure forever. He says in verse 14 of this passage in 2 Samuel 7, which is not in our bulletins, he says this, I will be to your son a father, and he shall be to me a son. But this language is also theological language that belongs to the theology of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat upon which the sacrificial offering is made to turn back the wrath of God. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, we read this. He says, Yahweh your God is in your midst. Or more literally, Yahweh is in your inner parts. Some translations translate this as, Yahweh your God is in your womb. Zephaniah 
is intentionally alluding back to Exodus that speaks to God's presence resting upon the Ark of the Covenant and dwelling in the midst of or in the womb of Israel. This is the same word that Gabriel uses here to Mary. You will conceive in your womb. And Mary's womb, serving as an ark, carries with it the mercy seat upon which the sacrificial atonement will be poured out as the propitiation. And Mary's womb is Christ the Lord. So back to 2 Samuel. Notice, with the intention of this conversation between David and Nathan, with everything we just looked at, the problem was never the tent. The problem was never that the ark of God didn't have a proper, quote-unquote, place to rest. And it was never that David was at rest while Yahweh was seemingly restless. None of these things were a problem. The problem was with their perception of these things. It was with assuming that the tent is a subpar dwelling for God, an unfit resting place for the ark of the God of the universe. Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, all of these things are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The tent is a shadow of the greater substance to come in the Lord Jesus. So Nathan and David's misperception, though driven by the love of God and a desire to honor him, misses the true meaning of the tent as a resting place for the ark. And it misses that the ark and Yahweh dwell and rest where his people dwell and rest. He dwells in the midst of them. Because Yahweh's dwelling has always been in the midst of his people. This is why the tabernacle was set up in the center of the tribes as they wandered in the wilderness. They had a real-time visual perception of Yahweh dwelling in their midst. In the incarnation of Christ, our perceptions and expectations of who God is and how we assume he is supposed to work are completely turned over to show us that Yahweh is a God who still dwells within our midst. I've read this verse a lot over Advent, but it's still appropriate here. John the Apostle writes in his prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled or pitched his tent in our midst. The late Pope Benedict XVI writes this, he says, Jesus' flesh is the house or the tent of the word of God. Jesus is the tent of meeting. Jesus is the reality for which the tent and the later temple could only serve as signs. Jesus' origin, his provenance, is the true beginning. It is the primordial source from which all things come from. Jesus is the light that makes the world into the cosmos. He comes from God and he is God. The ark and the tent in which it rests go together completely and in perfect harmony together because they point us to the ultimate rest that is found in Christ Jesus alone. David might understand that the people of Israel are in a type of the Sabbath rest, but thankfully we have the sermon of the letter of Hebrews that tells us this in chapter 4. If Joshua, or if you want to put in parentheses David or Solomon or anyone else for that matter, if Joshua had given God's people complete rest, then God would not have spoken of another day later on. That's what he's speaking of here. So then, says Hebrews, there remains for us a Sabbath rest, a complete rest for the people of God. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us strive to enter that rest. Let us strive with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In Christ, the perfect tabernacle of God, we have the perfect dwelling of the ark of God. The Lord provided the Israelites with a place of propitiation on the lid of the ark. And in the incarnation, God provided Christ as the mercy seat to serve as our propitiation. It is in Him that we find both a complete and perfect sacrifice, a complete and perfect mediator, but also our complete and perfect rest in the Lord our God. So, as we now come to the end of the season of Advent, of which we will celebrate tonight as we prepare to celebrate the Incarnation, let us rightly understand and perceive what God has done for us in Christ. Let us celebrate in hope and in faith and in joy and in peace and love. We can love God because he has first loved us. And he has proven this love to us through the incarnation of Christ. Jesus tells Nicodemus in their nighttime meeting, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world might be saved through him. So now come to the table of plenty. Come to the feast of heaven and earth and love Yahweh your God because of the great work that he has done for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God.